on today's episode of the Elder Law Coach Podcast. I'm sitting here with this person who basically understands what they're doing, but yeah, they don't really remember what they ate for breakfast. They don't know who the president is. They've asked my name every 10 or 15 minutes Mm -hmm. because they forget, but they understand what's going on. And you're telling me I can't have this person sign documents. My only option is a guardianship because they have a dementia diagnosis. We've got to go take away their rights, spend five, six, seven, eight thousand dollars and appoint someone else who's now going to take control of their life. This person doesn't deserve that. Welcome to the Elder Law Coach Podcast, where you'll get the information you need to really help seniors lower your work stress, improve your work-life balance, and make a good living. Your hosts are certified elder law attorney, Todd Watley, and his co-host, Sarah Scott. They're here to help you do just that. Join us today as we discuss hot topics in elder law and topics to help you help our seasoned citizens and their families. Here's your Elder Law Coach podcast hosts, licensed nursing home administrator, Sarah Scott and Todd Watley. Well, welcome back, everyone, to the Elder Law Coach Podcast. My name is Sarah Scott, and I am a co-host most of the time Mm -hmm. with the certified elder law attorney, Todd Watley. How are you? I like how you say the. It's not true, but I am a certified. It is the the truth. Thank you very much. Okay. Um, yes, thank you very much for listening. Um, today we're going to do a hot topic. Okay. It's one of the, I've, I am dealing with it in two different cases right now. And it's one thing that can really make a difference in your practice and it will distinguish you from the other attorneys out there. And, um, I want attorneys to understand this because I love old people and, one of the biggest things, and Sarah, as a nursing home administrator, she's seen it, and I deal with it all the time. Is and as an elder law attorney, I would say half of our clients have diminished capacity. They Easy. have some Easy. dementia diagnosis. Mm-hmm. They may not be diagnosed, but they are slipping some, and that's why families bring them into us. Mm-hmm. And the prevalent idea out there among non-elder law attorneys is, oh, if someone has dementia, they can't sign documents. Well, I would not be able to sign any documents if that were true. And it frustrated me. The first part of my career is I'm sitting here with this person who basically understands what they're doing. But yeah, they don't really remember what they ate for breakfast. They don't know who the president is. They've asked my name every 10 or 15 minutes Mm -hmm. because they forget, but they understand what's going on. And you're telling me I can't have this person sign documents. My only option is a guardianship because they have a dementia diagnosis. We've got to go take away their rights, spend five, six, seven, eight thousand $8,000 and appoint someone else who's now going to take control of their life, this person doesn't deserve that. And it's just frustrating. Okay. I've got to play devil's advocate. Okay. I've got to. Okay. Because not that I disagree with you, Mm -hmm. but I can see the other side. Mm -hmm. I can see someone saying, but Todd, you know that dementia just keeps getting worse and worse. Mm -hmm. How on earth do you expect to be able to defend mm-hmm. this document mm-hmm. in court 
and say, yeah, at this point, on this day when we signed this document, he had capacity. Mm-hmm. I mean, how can you do that? Okay. Well, I follow our ethical rules. How about that? Well, <laughs> okay. explain, please. Okay. <laughs> and you you as a non-elder law attorney, or even if you are an elder law attorney, I encourage you to read. And I am going from the American Bar's um, professional rules of conduct, which I think most states have taken. So this could vary a little bit based on your state, but I am going from the ABA professional rules of conduct, which I think are the rules in most states. Rule 1.14 is titled client with diminished capacity. Okay. So thankfully the gurus of ethics realize we may be dealing with clients who don't have full capacity. Okay. Mm -hmm. And there's a whole rule on that. And I have found most attorneys have never read this rule. They probably don't focus on it in law school. We do focus on you can't sleep with your clients. You can't steal your clients money. You Mm -hmm. can't give away attorney client privileged information. We pound on those, Yeah, but we don't pound on what if your client's not fully there? Mm -hmm. Okay. The assumption is we can't work with them. So there are, there's a, B and C of the actual rule. And what I want to, um, focus on is just a a few of those. So paragraph A of rule 1.14 says when a client's capacity to make adequately considered decisions in connection with a representation is diminished, whether because of minority mental impairment or for some other reason, the lawyer shall, as far as reasonably possible, maintain a normal client-lawyer relationship with the client. Okay. So we're told just in the rule itself to maintain a normal client lawyer relationship. Well, what does that actually mean? We go to the comments. Okay. And so when we get to the comments, the first comment, first sentence says the normal client lawyer Relationship is based on the assumption that the client, when properly advised and assisted, is capable of making decisions about important matters. Our ethical rules tell us to assume the client has capacity. And what I see from judges and I see from attorneys is they don't do that. They do the opposite. They are violating the ethical rules by assuming, oh, you have a diagnosis of dementia, and so therefore you are incapacitated and I can't work with you. But the doctors have these notes. I don't care. I don't care what the doctor says. They've lost capacity to make decisions. Doctors are very protective. They would rather you go file a guardianship so they can deal with the guardian because this person's a little difficult to deal with. They forgot what we talked about 15 minutes ago, but that doesn't mean that they don't know. I really don't want this surgery. Okay. Or I do want this, or I don't want that. It is difficult to deal with someone with diminished capacity. It's easier to deal with a guardian. So the doctor is going to be very safe. They're afraid of being sued and it's just easier to work with a guardian. And so they will routinely easily say this person cannot make decisions. Mm -hmm. 
I don't care. And on that point, comment six, and I will spend quite a bit of time here, but the the final sentence on six says, in appropriate circumstances, the lawyer may seek guidance from an appropriate diagnostician. I have had attorneys, and I grade SELA exams all the time, and I will see sometimes when the question is on diminished capacity, I will it ticks me off because this is not correct. The person will say, well, I would only draft documents after consultation with their physician. And I'm like, no, no, you are, you are not looking after the best interests of your client. You are forcing them into a legal procedure that is not necessary if you're going to pawn that decision off onto a physician who is very conservative and very, yes, they can't make those decisions. Whereas us as attorneys, we are to look out for the best interests of our clients and forcing our client into a court proceeding where they take away their rights mm-hmm. is not looking after their best interests. No, it's not. Okay. Well, the only time it is, is when they truly have that high level of diminished capacity. Mm-hmm. Yep. Absolutely. So, um, Further down in paragraph one, it says maintaining the ordinary client-lawyer relationship may not be possible in all aspects. In particular, a severely incapacitated person may have no power to make legally binding decisions. Nevertheless, a client with diminished capacity often has the ability to understand, deliberate upon, and reach conclusions about matters affecting the client's own well-being, okay? The rules tell us that, yes, a client may not be fully there, but they can make some decisions. And now, here's what freaks people out, that we're not taught this in law school, and when I tell you this, you're going to say, okay, Todd, and I, I encourage you, go to this rule, and if you find something in this rule that you, that I'm saying is incorrect, please let me know. Okay. Who wants to argue about this? I don't want to prove me wrong, okay? <laughs> but I'm just, it's just depressing that I am an advocate for older people and throwing an older person into court, taking away their right. We spend, how much money do we spend on public defenders to help make sure a person accused of a crime doesn't have their rights taken away? The Constitution, Miranda rights, I mean, all of that stuff. We go to, you know, a jury decides beyond a reasonable doubt, not just 50-50, but, mm-hmm. you know, or 51-49, it's beyond a reasonable doubt they decide this person is guilty. That even lets them say, well, I have a little bit of doubt. Yeah, so okay? they must be innocent. Yeah. yeah. If, if you have a little bit of doubt, you err on the side of letting this person go free. It's only after a very, you know, convoluted, specific process that we throw this person in jail, we take away their rights. But for old people, oh, they have a diagnosis of Alzheimer's, we need a guardianship. Mm-hmm. A guardianship takes away the person's rights. Yeah, yeah. That is not in their best interest. <sighs> so then, Todd, how bad do they have to be before you won't you. let them... Sign a document. Okay. We got into comment six. This is where the fun begins. Okay. So 
Comment six tells us in determining the extent of the client's diminished capacity, just that phrase right there tells us as attorneys, we have the ability and the obligation to determine the extent. It's not the physician's job. It is our job sitting here with this client sitting here today to say, I am determined. It is my job as the attorney to determine the extent of the client's diminished capacity. The lawyer should consider and balance such factors as the client's ability to articulate reasoning leading to a decision. So a person needs to tell you, yeah, that's my son. He's been doing documents or been doing financial things for me for years. He should be my financial power of attorney. Okay. They may not, you know, they might not be able to tell you who the president is, what day it is. It doesn't matter. But if they say, yeah, that's my son. He's been doing it. I want him to continue doing it. He should be able to sign a document. Okay. Then you say that. So what makes it different if your client comes in with this young, new living caregiver? Mm -hmm who has convinced your client to change powers of attorney yep. over to her. Okay. You've let him sign documents two weeks ago appointing his son and his capacity is not changed. Right. What do you do? Okay. The next section of comment six says you, you must also look at the variability of state of mind and the ability to appreciate the consequences of a decision. So, what I'm leading up to, and I'll get to it in just a second, you look at the risk of the document, okay? If the risk of the document, meaning appointing the brand new caregiver, cute female girl as the person now in control of your entire estate, that's a high risk document, okay? You're appointing someone you don't know who could steal your money, has no track record, that's a high risk document. I may let a person sign a power of attorney appointing them, but they have to have a very high level of capacity. They need to tell me, I have no one else in my family. I have kids, but they have stolen from me. They have treated me bad. They never come to visit. She is my pastor's daughter. I trust her. I've known her her entire life, and I think she will do a good job, okay? to articulate that is a very high level of capacity. If he just says, uh, she's just been my caregiver for two weeks and I think she should do it. No, that is not articulating the consequences of this decision. And so our rules tell us this, you need to take the risk of the document into play. Okay. You also need to look at the substantive substantive fairness of this decision okay so is it fair for you to do a trust and um it not leave money to someone else if if you've always wanted to share everything equally and then suddenly you want to change you you need to have a really good reason for that you need to be able to explain why they want to do that and so that requires a higher level so We'll get to this in just a second, um, but the other thing is sub substantial fairness and the cons consistency of a d decision with known long-term commitments and the values of the client. Um, 
Why don't we take a quick break, hear from our sponsor, and jump right back into that. Okay. Do you have clients who are over-resourced for Medicaid, but interested in accelerating Medicaid eligibility while preserving their assets? Your clients may want to consider purchasing a Medicaid-compliant annuity, MCA. MCAs are specialized insurance solutions offered by only a handful of insurance companies. To learn more about MCAs, reach out to Amber Hines at Ashbur. Ashbur is a nationally licensed organization that helps clients achieve Medicaid eligibility through the use of MCAs. Ashbur hosts monthly educational webinars pertaining to various Medicaid planning topics. To learn more, visit ashbur.com or call 888 888- 441-1595. You're listening to the Elder Law Coach Podcast. Now, back to your hosts, licensed nursing home administrator, Sarah Scott and Todd Watley. Well, welcome back, everybody, to the Elder Law Coach Podcast with Sarah Scott and the Certified Elder Law Attorney and Coach, Todd Watley. We had to take a break. Hope you enjoyed the little message from our sponsor. And had to check Todd's blood pressure because it was getting, his face was turning pretty red. This is a very hot topic we're talking about today. And diminished capacity is definitely a soapbox that he has been riding on for a long time, but right. he's serious about this, and there are, you know, legitimate rules and reasons. So, where were we? Okay, so <laughs> we're on comment six of rule 1.14, and you may notice some of those requirements and things don't sound real legal. They're almost like medical. Well, these comments came from a meeting back in, I think it was the late 90s, and it was a convention between psychologists, psychiatrists, and attorneys to say, look, we're getting too many guardianships. We are forcing people into this thing that I just said is so terrible and taking away rights when there's alternatives. And so they actually came together, physicians and attorneys came together and came up basically with paragraph six of the comments to rule 1.14. And so the medical community had input on this and it's our guideline to do this, to look at the situation and look at the risk of the document and say, this person has some dementia, but the decision he's making really does make sense. Mm-hmm. He's appointing his nurse daughter as his healthcare power of attorney. He doesn't know what he ate for breakfast. He doesn't know what month it is or, or day because he's retired. He doesn't care. But he knows his daughter is a nurse and she should be his healthcare power of attorney. That mm-hmm. makes sense. Mm-hmm. Okay. Why? throw him into a guardianship and go through all this process when the judge says, oh, if the daughter's a nurse, she would be a great guardian of the person. Mm -hmm. Ta-da, we just did what I tried to do at the office, but I get ridiculed because I'm doing documents for someone with some dementia 
doing exactly the same thing that would have happened had the person been thrown into court, taken away their rights, and now, okay, the, the daughter can make health care decisions. Mm-hmm. It's, it's infuriating. And so I do want to go into um, paragraph 7, which does jump in. It talks more about you know, appointing a guardian ad litem conservator, things like that. But toward the end of it, it, it says... In many circumstances, appointment of a legal representative may be more expensive or traumatic for the client than circumstances, in fact, require. Evaluation of of such circumstances is a matter entrusted to the professional judgment of the lawyer. Mm, not the doctor not after the doctor. all. So all these people, and when someone answers their SELA exam, says, I would not do documents until I get a written letter from the physician, they don't pass that answer. Mm-hmm. Fail, okay? Not the test, but that answer, you don't get very many points because you've obviously not read this rule, and this is not the rule, that attorneys are given the ability and they are to determine can this person sitting here at this point in time, can they sign documents or can they not? Hmm. Sarah's eyes are big and she's just, I know. So please understand if, if someone comes to you and they have dementia, they are wanting you to protect their rights. Mm -hmm. A Guardianship is not protecting their rights. You're taking away their rights and giving it to someone else. Our ethical rules give us the leeway, the ability to to sit down and look at this person and look at what they are wanting to do. If what they are doing makes very good sense, it's what 95% of everybody does, that's a no-risk or a low-risk document. And they can be pretty incapacitated and mm-hmm. still say, yeah, that's my son. Yes, I want him to handle the financial affairs for me. They don't have to fully understand every paragraph of the power of attorney. I would say most lay people don't under, with very little capacity can understand a very comprehensive power of attorney. They just know basically this gives that person the ability to sign documents for me. So it's our job to do that. Please, please, please protect your elderly client's rights and don't make the assumption that they're incapacitated and they can't sign documents because if you do, you are violating our ethical rules. Right. One thing I do want to just brag on Todd that he does so well is um, not only meeting them physically where they are sometimes with on-site signings and so forth, but um, meeting them where they are cognitively Mm -hmm. as well. Mm -hmm. And not trying to, not in an offensive or disrespectful way, but in the way that he just ranted on and on about (laughs) with trying to figure out what their level of capacity is. If a client has been resistant to signing over power of attorney documents because they don't want to lose control, and Todd tells them the only other option is guardianship, and that is absolute loss of control, Mm -hmm. and they can process that in their mind and say, oh, well, then I'll sign. Yeah. (laughs) That's, That's a pretty good level of capacity. Mm -hmm. They could reason that and understand why this document is important. And yeah, it does in fact 
you know, help me still maintain some control and have somebody in, you know, in line to help when I can no longer do that and avoid guardianship. Yeah. And I've, I've focused this on financial and healthcare power of attorney, but the rules apply to a trust. If, if they're leaving everything to the son sitting there at the table to the exclusion of the other siblings, that's a very high risk document. And Mm -hmm. there's other things you should do. You should, you know, send that son to the waiting room, have this person explain to you why that's a high risk document. Mm -hmm. They need to be able to explain very well why they want to leave everything to the son. And I would be very hesitant to do that, particularly since that son brought them in. They were possibly coached or whatever, but it's their stuff. They can leave it the way they want to if they fully understand what they're doing. So I did frame this on powers of attorney, but it applies to all documents. I do encourage you to listen very soon. Upcoming is my podcast on the importance of a power of attorney. As an elder law attorney, I think the most important document you can do is a financial and healthcare power of attorney, and I will do a whole podcast on that. So join me in a few episodes for that. That's right. And even if, you know, some of your lawyer buddies aren't elder law attorneys, let them know about this specific episode, because all the rules you just talked about were not specific to elder law attorneys. This is the American Bar Association rules. It applies to all attorneys. So drop a knowledge bomb and send them this podcast. Jump on board. All right. Thank you very much. You've been listening to Todd Watley and Sarah Scott on the Elder Law Coach Podcast. Thanks for listening. If you want more information on Todd's coaching program to help you learn elder law and grow your practice, contact him at Todd at the Elder Law Coach or visit the website, theelderlawcoach.com.